Trainingport.net presents Business Aviation Training Report. Hello and welcome to the Business Aviation Training Report. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. This podcast is produced by the leader in online training for business aviation, Trainingport.net. We link the aviation news of the day with the training needs of business aviation operators, management, their support staff, maintainers, and pilots. We want to discuss topics that are important to business aviation professionals. So please send us your questions, comments, and suggestions at podcast at trainingport.net. That's podcast at trainingport.net. Hello and welcome. There's been a lot of talk about getting back to flying, and some of the more complex work that is done around flying are international procedures. Everyone in your operation must be on the ball for international flying, such as flight followers for different airport rules and approvals, maintenance personnel for required operating equipment. I, for one, have expired for ETOPS flying, so I'm taking this opportunity to prepare my return. International flying may have training requirements based on where your operation resides, but regardless, it's always a good idea to get some international procedures training and just as importantly, keep your skills fresh with recurrent training and of course, regular oceanic and remote continental flights when you can. Now that flying is starting to return as the pandemic subsides, more oceanic flights are happening. But unfortunately, the oceanic errors are way up. The most frequent errors are incorrect weather deviation procedure and lateral errors due to lack of plotting chart usage. The North Atlantic 007 document states, Errors associated with reclearances continue to be the most frequent cause of gross navigational errors in the North Atlantic HLA. Plotting your route is critical and required. Also, the weather and non-weather contingency procedures changed for the globe in November of 2020. The good news is that there is only these procedures for the globe. However, when you are checking the AIP of the countries you will be flying through, it's a good idea to verify that these countries have adopted ICAO's new contingency procedures for their offshore operations. At this time, I don't know of any countries that have not adopted the new 5-mile offset contingency procedures. Other than international procedures training itself, Another helpful tool is a Quick Reference Handbook, or QRH, specifically for international procedures that resides on your EFB or in the cockpit or airplane library. Some crews have made their own, but Trainingport.net will be providing a QRH as a part of the recurrent international procedures topic that will be released later this year. A QRH could contain checklists for required aircraft equipment, pre-flight checklists, oceanic checklists, required radio verbiage, ETP procedures, waypoint passage procedures, slop procedures, contingency procedures, ditching procedures, communication failure procedures, waters or RMP 10 procedures, and more. Spend some time before your next international flight to refresh your knowledge. Let's go over some points that may come up on an international flight and that we may not deal with in domestic operations. Preparation is key with international flying as things can change frequently. Any prohibitions, restrictions, or notices for destination countries can be found by consulting many different websites, but the FAA has a good page on its website. Once destinations are selected, a route must be created, considering the following. Flight in oceanic airspace requires current and correct plotting charts. A digital version may be acceptable for your operation. 
If your route transits the polar areas, you may require training and special authorizations. You must select suitable en route and destination alternates and equal time points. ETOPS or Extended Twin Engine Operations Performance Standards requirements are applicable to Part 135 in the U.S. if flying more than 180 minutes single engine cruise speed from a suitable airport. Consider terrain clearance based on planned altitudes and diversion airports. For example, Greenland has 29 mountains over 6,000 feet. Any volcanic activity, flight over or into countries that are not WGS-84 compliant may require specific procedures such as deselecting GNSS. Have a look at your aircraft manual. This is just the tip of the iceberg, as it were. Prep time can be time-consuming. Okay, a little more on aircraft equipment. Flight crews must ensure that their aircraft is appropriately equipped for the route and airspace. This includes the requirements listed in ICAO Annex 6 Part 2. Check your MEL carefully if there are any deferred items. Also check for a MODES transponder, TCAS 2 version 7.1 or later, emergency locator transmitter capable of transmitting on 406 MHz, and any equipment required for communication, navigation, and surveillance, commonly referred to as CNS, operations, such as HF, RMP-10, RMP-4, RVSM, ADS-B, or ADS-C. Let's talk about communications specifically. To operate in oceanic airspace, aircraft must be equipped with two long-range communication systems, one of which must be a fully functioning high-frequency HF system for the NAT-HLA. Ensure you test your HF prior to departure as you may not enter the NAT HLA without a functioning HF. Make sure no one is near the antenna when you complete your HF test. When initiating contact with an air radio station, pilots should state the HF frequency in use. The VHF emergency frequency 121.5 or GARD should be continuously monitored so as to offer assistance to any aircraft advising an emergency situation. Theoretical VHF coverage charts may be consulted for the particular area of operation. 123.45 MHz is the air-to-air communication frequency in all ICAO regions. This frequency is intended for pilot-to-pilot exchanges of operationally significant information. For example, pilots may contact other aircraft when needed to coordinate a strategic lateral offset procedures or SLOP. Transition altitude. Okay, altimeter reference settings can vary between states and can be stated in terms of QNE, QFE, or QNH. Transition altitudes and levels will vary between states as well as the altimeter reference settings. QNH is when an altimeter subscale indicates height above sea level, QFE indicates height above ground for that location, and QNE is standard pressure setting or 2992 inches of mercury or 101.3.2 hectopascals uh, millibars and causes the altimeter to read pressure altitude. Transition altitude is the highest altitude after which flight levels are referenced. Transition altitude and level will typically be listed on approach charts or occasionally will be stated by ATC. When climbing through the transition altitude, flight crew are expected to switch from QNH to QNE and when descending, switch from QNE to QNH, unless the state uses QFE as a reference. Okay, risk assessments. Prior to commencing an international flight, a formal risk assessment should be completed that addresses at least some of the following. Potential fatigue issues based on departure times, time zone crossings, duty time, and consecutive flight days, flight crew experience and currency, 
areas of operations, including security threats and health threats. International NOTAMs are a good resource for up-to-date information. Airspace search and rescue options, required onboard survival equipment, airspace-appropriate contingency procedures. They are now global, but as I said before, check the AIPs to be sure. And vaccination and quarantine requirements if applicable. Participate in your operations SMS if you have one for the safety of everyone. What if you have to ditch? A cargo aircraft did just that recently in Hawaii, and I doubt the crew had much time before they were in the water. The total flight time was 23 minutes, and they were on base when they chose to ditch. Information about ditching can be found in your aircraft manual. For example, procedures for the Global 6000 include determining the ditching heading based on wind, speed, and direction. The Global Manual says if the wind speed is less than 15 knots, aircraft alignment should be parallel to the swells. If the wind speeds are between 15 and 45 knots, pick a landing heading between the wind and the swell directions, and if the wind speed is greater than 45 knots, land into wind. Operators conducting oceanic operations are encouraged to be familiar with the Automated Mutual Assistance Vessel Rescue System, or AMVR. AMVR is a computer-based voluntary global ship reporting system used worldwide by search and rescue authorities to arrange for assistance to persons in distress at sea. In the event of a ditching, all merchant vessels registered with AMVR and within 100 nautical miles of the aircraft's predicted ditching position will be notified. Okay, let's talk a bit about Air Inc. naming. Oceanic waypoints are named according to the Air Inc. 424 Navigation Database specifications. It is important to note that due to the likelihood of errors arising from using the ARINC 424 method, especially when entering half-degree coordinates, Transport Canada, the FAA, and ICAO suggest entering the entire 13-character latitude and longitude coordinates when loading waypoints into an FMS and using procedures that provide for adequate mitigation of display ambiguity. Ensure you are familiar with your FMS and the 13-character waypoint entry. Okay, the World Geodetic System 1984 or WGS 84. ICAO specifies the WGS 84 or equivalent, such as NAT 83, as the geodetic reference datum standard for defining air navigation latitude and longitude coordinates. Most aircraft use WGS 84. Therefore, it is important that navigation and approach charts use WGS 84 reference datum. Operators must be aware of their aircraft limitations when in non-WGS-84 airspace. Refer to your specific aircraft flight manual for more information on specific procedures. How about uh, TERPS versus PANSOPS? PANSOPS and TERPS are rules for designing approach and departure procedures to provide minimum obstacle clearance. Procedures for Air Navigation Services, or PANSOPS, are the ICAO standard used in Europe and many other countries worldwide. TERPs, or Terminal Instrument Procedures, are used in the United States, Canada, Korea, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and others. What are some key differences? Circling is one. The radius of the circle area used in PANSOPS is larger than that used in U.S. TERPs because the indicated airspeed used for the true airspeed calculation is greater and the assumed bank angle is lower. This means that an obstacle within the circling area using PANSOPS might fall outside the obstacle clearance area using TERPs. This is believed to be a major factor in the fatal accident in 2002 in Korea in which a Boeing 767 crashed while circling. Okay, some other differences. 
Uh, units of measurement for terps is statue miles, nautical miles, and feet. And for panzops, it's meters. WGS84 compliance for terps is yes. And for panzops, not always. Climb gradient on departure for terps and panzops, they both use 3.3% or 200 feet per nautical mile, but their defined departure end of runways are different. So check that out. Airspeed on approach, 200 knots over the initial fix for terps. And for panzops, initial and intermediate segments are designed for a maximum of 240 knots. Descent rate on approach, terps, 250 feet per nautical mile is the optimum descent gradient. Panzops, maximum descent rate is 1,000 feet per nautical mile outbound. Here's a big one. Holding speeds are the speeds are the same, but all the altitudes are different. So for terps, 0 to 6,000 feet, 200 knots, 6,000 to 14,000, 230, 14 and above, 265. Panzops, 0 to 14,000 feet, which is probably where a lot of holds happen, uh, all 230 knots. And then 14 to 20, 240, 20 to 34,000 feet is 265 knots. So have a look at those. Procedure turns on approach. For TERPs, specific procedure turns are mandatory unless otherwise cleared. With PANSOPS, procedure turn type is pilot's choice unless prohibited in the approach procedure. It's a good idea to review TERPs and PANSOPS differences in detail. Okay, last one. How about timekeeping en route in oceanic airspace? Historically, The use of multiple time sources on aircraft in oceanic airspace has led to inconsistencies in reporting times to ATC and resulted in loss of longitudinal separation. A time source synchronized to UTC or GPS time must be designated as the master clock. Typically, this is the FMS. This time source must be used for all estimated times of arrival and actual times of arrival to waypoints, etc. Okay, let's shift gears for a moment. In the news is a section of the podcast where I talk about other happenings in aviation. Researchers at Washington State University have developed a process for turning waste plastic into jet fuel and other hydrocarbons. Polyethylene is the most common plastic used worldwide, and a very low percentage of polyethylene is recycled. Most finds its way to landfills. So the researchers, using their new process, were able to convert 90% of the plastic material into Jet A or other hydrocarbons. The team hopes to continue trials and use other types of plastics. Check out the very technical write-up of the process at their website. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening and have a great day. That's our podcast for today. Podcast notes will be posted on our website at tradingport.net. Click on podcast. We aim to discuss topics that are relevant to business aviation professionals, and we would love to hear your suggestions for future podcasts. You can email us at podcast at trainingport.net. That's podcast at trainingport.net. This podcast is brought to you by trainingport.net, leader in online business aviation training. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. Have a great day. And thank you for listening to the Business Aviation Training Report. For more information on each episode, visit us at www.trainingport.net slash podcast. Trainingport.net, helping business aviation professionals excel.